We get support from BrooklynIn.com. You've heard me talk about them before because, um, I, you know, I, I guess I talked to you about how I sleep, and I sleep on Brooklyn and sheets, and they feel real good. And guess what else they make now? Comforters, loungewear, towels, all with a lifetime warranty. So go make yourself comfortable and get 10% off your first order and free shipping when you use promo code TERRIBLE only at BrooklynIn.com. Brooklyn Inn, everything you need to live your most comfortable life. Hi, everyone. It's Nora McInerney, and this is Terrible Thanks for Asking, which is the slogan for America. America. Terrible. Thanks for asking. Minnesota, where this show is based, also terrible. Thanks for asking. Things have been terrible here and in many cities for a long time. And people of color and specifically black people have been saying that. They've been saying, uh, this is not good. This is bad. This is terrible. And it's been ignored. Minnesota. Mm, Minnesota. What do I say about Minnesota? Land where I was born. Land where I was raised. Land of 10,000 lakes. Land of butter sculptures. Of beauty queens. Um, always on best places to live lists, which is interesting because all of those should come with an asterisk that's like best place to live. If you're white, because there's this thing called the Minnesota paradox, it's a term. It was coined by Samuel L. Myers, and it's a term used to describe the fact that there are these huge disparities between the experience of white Minnesotans and the experience of black Minnesotans. And those experiences are backed up by data. Data that says from the Minneapolis Police Department's own statistics that Black people are about 20% of Minneapolis's population, but are also more likely to be pulled over, more likely to be arrested and have force used against them, uh, more likely to be the victims of police shootings, at least in the data from 2009 to May 2019. The point is, there's huge disparities. There's huge economic disparities between white and black residents of Minnesota, huge educational disparities. We have the lowest rate of black homeownership in the United States. So the experience of white Minnesotans, like me, is not the same as black Minnesotans. Now, in the past few weeks since George Floyd was killed by the Minneapolis Police Department, we have, as a team at Terrible Thanks for Asking, been focused on our community in in Minnesota on our team and the way that we you know make this show and use this show use this platform for good and we took last week off and we wanted to make sure that when we do come back and and publish and we're sort of back now this is us being sort of back we know what we want to say and more importantly we know who needs to be saying it because it's probably not 55 minutes of a white lady named Nora telling you about racism we've talked on this show before about trauma about the experience of trauma how it is something that gets into your body into your DNA something that changes you physically not just emotionally and we've talked about that mostly in the context of childhood trauma. But today's episode is about racial trauma and policing. It's a recording of a conversation hosted by our colleague, Angela Davis, from Minnesota Public Radio, and it is a must-listen. You must, you must listen to it, okay? You just must. I also want to say, before this episode starts, it is very weird um, to be reading ads before and during this topic. It feels as off as they sound. And also advertisements and sponsors are how we make this show. But 
wanted to acknowledge that. Just how, if it feels, if it sounds jarring to you, it felt jarring to us too. But enough of me. Here is Angela Davis. This is Minnesota Public Radio News, and I'm Angela Davis. Welcome to Call to Mind, Spotlight on Black Trauma and Policing. As you know, the killing of George Floyd has sparked peaceful demonstrations as well as destructive protests in the Twin Cities and across the country. George Floyd was a black man killed while being forcefully detained by a since-fired Minneapolis police officer. That officer is now facing murder and manslaughter charges. And we also know that Minnesota's Department of Human Rights has now launched an investigation uh, looking into the last 10 years of the Minneapolis Police Department's actions for sustainability civil rights violations. For many people, George Floyd's killing is the latest graphic instance of a Black American being killed by the police. And his homicide, the most recent national example of historic institutional discrimination against people of color and indigenous groups. So today, we are putting a spotlight on trauma of Black Americans and how it intersects with policing. And we have some experts on this secure virtual community conversation to help us out today. We're joined by Resma Menachem, who is a licensed independent clinical social worker, as well as a cultural trauma expert. He is the founder of Justice Leadership Solutions in Minneapolis and the author of My Grandmother's Hands, Racialized Trauma and the Pathway to Mending Our Hearts and Our Bodies. Hello to you, Resma. Hello, sis. How are you? I'm doing all right. We're also joined by Justin Terrell. Justin is the executive director of the Minnesota, or rather the Council for Minnesotans of African Heritage. It's a nonpartisan policy agency advising the governor and the state legislature to more equitably represent Black and African people here in our state. Hello to you, Justin. Hello, Angela. Thank you for having us. And we also have Brittany Lewis joining us. Brittany is the founder and CEO of Research in Action. She's also a University of Minnesota researcher at its Center for Urban and Regional Affairs. She served on the State of Minnesota Working Group on Police-Involved Deadly Force Encounters, convened by Attorney General Keith Ellison. Hi, Brittany. Hi, how are you? I'm doing all right. You know, that's a tough question to answer these days, isn't it? When people ask you how you're doing, it, 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 there's, there's a lot there. Again, welcome to all of you. Uh, and I, I want to start with this definition of racial trauma. Mental health professionals um, know that racism and discrimination, they have strong and continual traumatic effects. And the symptoms, I'm told, of racial trauma are similar to those of post-traumatic stress disorder, known as PTSD. So, Resmet, I'll begin with you. This is your field. Let's talk more about this definition of racial trauma and and how it affects Black Americans. Can you help us with that? Yeah, yeah. So, so I, although I agree to to some degree that the definition works um, in terms of racial trauma, it doesn't get to really the day-to-day aspect of it. Like what actually happens to a body that is born into a system where the white body is considered the supreme standard of humanity, right? That what happens to a black body that is born into that system? And so one of the ways that I have a tendency to think about it is that um, there's this weathering effect 
of, of, of when we talk about racialization and white body supremacy, there is a there is a weathering effect. And what I'm in, in, and that is basically that the all if if all of the structures are predicated on the white body being the supreme standard of humanity and that the black body is deviant from that standard, just being born into a white body gives you an advantage and just being born into a black body the weathering effects of that begin to occur. And so even before I'm born, my mother is dealing with high levels of cortisol, high levels of adrenaline, high levels of, of norepinephrine in her body in order to deal with this because her mother dealt with it and her mother's mother's father dealt with it. And so by the time it gets to us, we it shows up as, uh, as asthma issues. It shows up as... Uh, as diabetes or high blood pressure, things like that. So even though the definition fits to some degree, it by no means gets to the debilitating effects of race, racialization, and white body supremacy. We know that when many Black Americans are diagnosed with high blood pressure, they, they tell you, well, there's a genetic component to it. And yeah. so does that is that part of it as well? Yeah, but when they say that, what they're talking about is that, and, and this is this is what I when I talk about philosophy, that the philosophy of white body supremacy is is woven into our language, is woven into every structure. So when they say that, what they're saying is the defect is in the black body. And what we're saying is that no, the defect is not in the black body. The defect is in a structure that continues to weather the black body that creates a condition for us to have uh, high blood pressure and for uh, and see that's what we never do we never we never examine the conditions that are created by which i my people have developed uh, uh diabetes that gets passed down through generations even if you account even if you account for lifestyle choices, my people still have to deal with that stuff. And so that is so. So my only caveat to that is that it yes, it gets passed down. But if you don't put it in the context of, of white supremacy, then you put the defect inside of black people. And that's not where the defect is. All that said, what does the what's the impact of seeing the way George Floyd died, the killing of George Floyd what does that have? Um, how does it impact the cumulative historic racial trauma that you're discussing that 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 black Americans continue to endure? So 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 whenever I'm I'm looking and I'm working in my office or I'm working with people in the community with regard to trauma and racialized trauma, I think about it in what I call the HIP, right? H-I-P-P. -P. And that's historical, intergenerational persistent institutional and then personal traumas all get coupled together. So the impact of that is an uncorking of hundreds upon hundreds upon hundred years of grief, right? A, 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 an uncorking upon hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of years of terror and horror, right? And so what you're seeing is a display of that. And so, once again, the defect is not in black folks. The defect is in a white body supremacist system that continues to replicate itself and damage and destroy black bodies. So the effects of it is that we, it uncorks all of that grief and that grief shows up in our houses. That grief shows up on the street. That grief shows up in when we're trying to talk. That grief shows up in my wife. Um. That grief shows up in my wife 
struggling. And, and the grief shows up in my son having nosebleeds out of the blue or my hips hurting or my neck. That's how it's showing up or, or not knowing what to say or having all of the, or feeling like the, like there is a, a, a different texture of weight on my body because there is. It is not an individual weight, it's a communal weight. And that got uncorked when we got reminded that our bodies in this system, the race question in this in this society is not a race question. It is a species question first. Am I a monkey? And so that was that that's what you see. Many people have said that they could not look at the video of George Floyd on the ground with that officer's knee kneeling on his neck. Uh, Black people, white people, people of, of all races have said they could not, did not wish to see it. But particularly with black people, viewing that video, what can you say about what, how that affected people? So, so what I, so here's what I want people to start doing is. I could only watch a little bit of it because I can't see any. I, I, I've seen my people hung from trees and hung from bridges and women, women raped. I've seen all of that. I don't need to see that anymore to know that this, this system is not broken. The system is has been designed to do exactly what it is doing. It is not a broken system. And people need to stop saying that. It is not a broken system. People need to take that video and zoom out. Of of watching brother uh, brother George Floyd die. Zoom out of that and just focus on the white cop. Just focus on him. Just focus on how how sure he was in his face that nothing was going to happen to him. How sure he was that he was not destroying another uh, another human being. He was destroying a monkey or a zebra or a lion. Just look at his face and examine that. Stop examining the, the terror and the horror that my people are going through. We've been saying this for 400 years. Examine what white people do and what they reinforce. What he displayed was that he is the spear of this of, of of the white body supremacist system and what was on his face was sure was 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 the fact that he was sure that nothing was going to happen because the whole structure was behind Justin Terrell, I want to bring you into the conversation. You've been leading the Council for Minnesotans of African uh, Heritage for the last two and a half years, advising the governor, advising state lawmakers about policies that can make institutions and systems more equitable for black Minnesotans. Uh, First, I want to give you a chance to respond to some of what Resma has has stated here. I mean, uh, I appreciate the the opportunity to respond. as usual, uh, my brother Resma has hit it on the head. I mean, it's spot on. I, you know, I was thinking I had this image coming to my mind while he was talking. I remember my senior year in high school, I went uh, with a bunch of buddies. We went on a, a hiking trip to Wyoming and we strapped these giant backpacks to our back. And by the end of the week, we had these huge welts on our hips. And I just realized like, and, and I just realized like that's like my experience of being black. It's just feeling like I'm constantly carrying this burden that is just damaging my body and you can't ever shake it. And that's not the only experience, but it is a significant part of our experience and how we pass that on to a, how do I explain to my child, you know, what that burden is that he's starting to feel because he's starting to feel it and the kid turns five next week, right? 
like there is a real lived experience here around a society that is that is centered around white body supremacy. And I've read Resma's book, and I just think it's one of the most healthy things that black people in this moment right now can actually do, include specifically the exercises to keep us mindful and present. Because if we're not, like, we've just got too much pressure on ourselves right now to protect our own neighborhoods, to protect our people and loved ones and families. And we need to acknowledge that the weight being put upon us is actually not our weight. It is not our weight. Like, we did not create these problems. We are living in a country with a gaping wound that has never even been attempted to be healed. You go to, you go to Germany, and they had to heal after the Holocaust. You go to South Africa, and you have truth and reconciliation. We don't have that in this country. So the fact that we find ourselves in this moment again should not surprise anybody. And the, and the failure of our, of, our, um, uh, of our local governments to address the needs of black folks, even though we've been putting policies and ideas in front of them for years and years and years, the pushback, the, the silence has led to this moment where cities are burning. Brittany, Brittany Lewis, I want to ask you about your work, but first I want to give you an opportunity, anything you want to say about what Resma and, and, and Justin have already shared about this moment that the, we are in right now. I appreciate you both kind of providing a framework for the conversation. Um, And I argue I'm of two minds about what's taking place now. I think history tells us that we can't be hopeful. Mm. Just be quite frank. Mm, mm, mm. Um, History and the ways in which white institutions move tell us um, that there'll be nominal appeasement. Mm. Um, and history tells us um, that our lives in this country have been confined and defined by our ability to um, struggle through a context that never meant for us to be here. Um, I'm trying to stay hopeful, but I'm also you know, a really clear and direct person. I move in the realm of policy and research. Um, and I have been trying for years uh, to build inroads and partnerships with folks like the Minneapolis Police Department um, and others and has been met with lip service. Um, and let's also be clear, this is the beginning. Yes. There's still a trial. There's still a lot of questions to be answered. And let's also be clear, we are in the state of Minnesota where white progressive politics moves in a particular way. Let's name it for what it is. We use the word equity like the word the. We use that word to signal our own white progressiveness. And then we produce reports that make us feel good, but we don't move on the action items because we're implicated in the change needed. So when I'm in these rooms, Um, Because my goal and the work that I do is to ensure that the research and data collected come from those most impacted and that they guide the conversation and the narrative. Because let's just be real, research has been moved um, in opposition to folks of color from the inception of this country. Um, So I want to be hopeful and in partnership with you all, but I also want us to be prepared for what these next tangible moves look like. I'm about tangible policy and practice change. Um, 
And I, I want to move beyond equity-based language to equity actions. That is the framework I use in my work every day. Um, and anyone who engages with me in my work understands that that's what we're going to get from Dr. Lewis. So I appreciate the framework of, that was set out by Resna and Terrell about where we have been historically. Um, but I also want us to be really clear with our language when yes. we have this conversation. Yes. And Brittany, I want to yes. talk about the work that you are doing. You served on the state of Minnesota working group on police-involved deadly force encounters with lawmakers, social advocates, and law enforcement representatives, including Minneapolis Police Chief Madera Arredondo. And, and that working group, I know, released a report back in February uh, with 28... 28 recommendations and 33 action steps uh, covering community engagement, healing, training, prevention, policies, accountability. As someone, as you said, you work with data and analysis. What did you glean from that process? You know, I was honored to be a part of that process. Um, I know there were mixed feelings across community, um, all of which I understood. Um, two things that Two critiques that set in my mind well was community have been doing work in this area for before the beginning of time. Um, and often we don't center their voices in our policy conversations. So I hear the point for a lot of community based organizations that focus on criminal reform to say we've been saying that for a really long time. Why did it need for your body to come together to say it? I can dig it. The second critique was, why are there officers even here? There was also a, a pushback there, right? And that comes from a place of trauma and pain. The notion that, that the folks that are directly implicated in the violence that we are receiving could be a part of the solution for a lot of folks is hard to digest. Mm -hmm. But I think something that we also have to both help educate and lean in with community is in order for any of these policies or practices to change, you can't do something to someone because we're used to that happening to us all the time. So let's just be honest. There's a, there's a, there's a struggle there. Mm -hmm. um, these processes have to happen. We have to find a way to build coalitions and let's call it strategic coalitions because we're not going to always agree. That's not what this is about. Mm -hmm. um, so that space was extremely important. The recommendations made in my humble opinion, most of us would argue they should have already been practices. <laughs> Let's just be honest. Okay, but this is how politics or the game of politics work, whether we like that or not. I'm also a member of the Youth Justice Council. I'm on the board of the Legal Rights Center, and we're pushing really hard. So the Youth, the youth Justice Council um, will um, release a report really soon. There was an internal report done on Juvenile justice and probation, there's 21 plus recommendations um, that come out of that work. And for many of us in the work, we're not going to be surprised by the things that we're hearing, right? But I think these initiatives matter because they provide tangible places to hold people accountable. Mm -hmm. um, and in each one of the recommendations, both the, the report on the Youth Justice Council work and the police involved deadly encounters work, there's a community healing and engagement component. It is almost um, impossible to have these conversations without that. Yeah. You are listening to Spotlight on Black Trauma and Policing. This program is produced by Call to Mind, NPR's and APM's initiative to foster new conversations about mental health. We'll be back with our guests, Resma Minikim, Justin Terrell, and Brittany Lewis 
after this break. I'm Angela Davis for Minnesota Public Radio News and American Public Media. We get support from Brooklinen. You know Brooklinen because um, I've talked about their sheets. I sleep on their sheets. They feel like I'm in a fancy hotel, except that I know I'm not in a fancy hotel because why are my kids here? If I were in a fancy hotel, I wouldn't have a foot in my face every night. Brooklinen doesn't just make sheets. They make bedding, loungewear, towels, and more. And I don't know. I just think you'll love them. I think you will love them. They're also making, look, they're making shower curtains. They're making bath mats. They're making robes. I'm about to get a linen robe because that sounds very fancy. Here's what you're going to do now. You're going to go to brooklinen.com because they give all their sheets, comforters, loungewear, and towels a lifetime warranty. A lifetime warranty. So go ahead, shop, feel good about it, and get 10% off your first order and free shipping when you use promo code TERRIBLE only at brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com. Brooklinen, everything you need to live your most comfortable life. We get support from StoryWorth. Finding the perfect present for Father's Day is, um, well, I don't have to worry about it because my dad's dead. Thanks for reminding me, everyone. Isn't that the worst? Now that my dad's dead, uh, one of the things that I'm most bummed about is the fact that uh, when a person dies, they take all their stories with them. And you're like, oh, my God, I should have asked my dad about that thing or what. You don't even know what you should have asked about. StoryWorth is a meaningful gift because every week they email your family member. They email your dad a different story prompt like, what's one of the riskiest things you've ever done? Please don't include anything sexual, dad. Or what are some of your greatest surprises? Your dad then writes, shares photos, and and the stories are sent to everyone that you decide should get the reply. So maybe that's just you. Maybe that's just you and your favorite sibling. I don't know. I'm not trying to cause a rift in your family. I'm just telling you how I would do it. Uh, I would have them only sent to me. Then at the end of the year, StoryWorth will compile every answered question and photo that you choose to include into a beautiful book that is shipped to you for free. So Give your dad the most meaningful gift this Father's Day with StoryWorth. Get started right away without the need for shipping by going to storyworth.com slash TTFA. You'll get $10 off your first purchase at storyworth.com slash TTFA. That's 10 bucks off at storyworth.com slash TTFA. Welcome to Call to Mind, Spotlight on Black Trauma and Policing. I'm Angela Davis for Minnesota Public Radio News and American Public Media. You're listening to a recorded virtual event about racial trauma and how our nation's systems and institutions like policing and the judiciary discriminate against Black people and other people of color and indigenous groups. We're joined by Resma Menachem, a social worker, cultural trauma expert, a trainer, and the author of My Grandmother's Hands, Racialized Trauma and the Pathway to Mending Our Hearts and Bodies. We also have with us Justin Terrell, the executive director of the state's Council for Minnesotans of African Heritage, and Dr. Brittany Lewis, CEO and of Research in Action and a University of Minnesota researcher at its Center for Urban and Regional Affairs. All right, I want to make sure we start to get to some of the questions that our listeners uh, have. Um, and I, I know people want to talk about the next steps, and we want to talk about our mental health and what what can we do. Uh, this first question, um, and I have this in writing, so I'm not sure the pronunciation is either Shanna or Shana. 
in Minneapolis. And the question is, how can we focus on healing when the pain is raw? How can we focus on healing when the pain is raw? And Resma, I will I will start with you in trying to respond to that because uh, this is the work that you do um, as someone who is, is is trained as a cultural trauma expert. How do we how do we start to heal? I think I think one of the things that happens is there's. When 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 things like this happen and we have and as a brother Terrell said, you have cities that start to burn, not just Minneapolis, but are all across the nation. Cities are starting to burn. That's how you know this is historical. This is not just individual or local. This is historical because the impact of it went across the nation. So if it was just local, then it would just happen here. But because it was representative of a larger structure, it went across. So what I say to people is this, is that we are black people. We are now at a place to where we have to reclaim things and practices that will allow us to heal and move through this. We have to actually go and excavate things that our mamas and grandmamas and our daddies used to do to help us through those things. So things, uh, uh, cultural things like opening up your house or being with people and just allowing people to grieve and wail. Right. Allowing people rub people's backs, um, say, I'm here with you. This stuff matters. When people ask these questions a lot, they think they, they, they have a medical model in their mind, not a communal model, not a community model. Right. What happened to me and my people, what happened to my people, what happened to justice people, what happened to Dr. Brittany's people didn't happen to our people individually, it happened communally. And so we have to develop communal practices and communal ways to deal with it. And so what I say is, is what you're starting to see is people starting to figure out, okay, what are those things that that actually help me in incremental ways just just experience safety a little bit? What things can I do to allow me to orient to now, just in this moment right now, that gives that which maybe I can touch just the remnant parts of safety. And then I do that again and again, and I get more reps in and more reps. And before you know it, I start to begin to be able to tap into the communal resource and not just my own, which has been taxed. And so what's starting to happen is that people are starting to understand that black people are starting to understand that what we have to do is is excavate those practices, rejigger those practices. I mean, when I was a kid, I didn't realize until I was 40 years old what my grandmother was doing. When I would sit in my grandmother's lap and my grandmother would rock and hum. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and put my head on it and just do, I and, and I would go to sleep. I didn't realize until I started doing my research for my book that what my grandmother was actually doing was she was regulating my vagus nerve, which allows for me to settle even if I'm in the middle of chaos. 
my grandmother did that and our people did that naturally. It's, it's why when we were in the fields and you would hear humming and, and call and response like that, it helped our nervous system settle. It's the same thing that monks do when they own, when they go, oh, to get into trance state. It's, it's, it's regulating the vagal nerve and that nerve goes throughout the whole body and it helps settling. If I can do that just for five seconds a day over time, my body will be able to recognize safety. Not when I leave outside the door, because when I leave outside the door, I need to be protected. I need to understand that people are going to hang me, kill me, um, thwart my thwart my trajectory to do better simply because my hair is in braids or in dreadlocks or natural. They're going to do things to me. So at that point, I need to I need to be on guard. But when I am at home, can I develop practices within my home and within myself that allows my body to begin to tap in and sense resource and safety? I want to move on to get to another one of our questions we have from a listener. This is from Jude. Jude writes this, mental illness in some African communities is off limits, like a taboo and a no-go area. As an African immigrant, how do we approach this conversation in a culturally appropriate way? We were supposed to have mental well-being session this weekend, which has been eclipsed by the murder of George Floyd. Um, this comes from Jude. So mental health in the Black community, uh, this is a touchy topic. You know, the uh, ability to say, I'm not okay, I need help, I think there's something wrong with my child, uh, I need help with, with, with mental illness. Uh, what are you all seeing in terms of the... Uh, the willingness uh, uh, of Black folks to say, hey, I'm, I'm going to a therapist or, or I think I need to go to a doctor for this. Uh, are we making more progress in that area? Is there enough access? Do we have enough mental health professionals that, that people feel comfortable talking with? Um, no. <laughs> Justin, you want to go first with that? <laughs> I mean, that's my answer. No, we don't have enough mental health professionals to talk to. I mean, uh and and we need and we need it bad. We are building that infrastructure within our own community, but I, I think that like part of we should really take it easy on ourselves when we start examining some of the things that we do uh, around this topic. When we're saying we're, you know the it's frustrating because it's like go see a therapist. Oh, just pray about it. Whatever. Like that that whole response, that whole conversation actually just makes a lot of sense. Because what was happening to us when we went to the therapist, mm -hmm. right? And you're sitting down from somebody who doesn't understand, across from someone who doesn't understand you, who's giving you advice that then is like counterproductive in what you, what you do within your own culture, right? That's not to say that we don't need to talk to somebody. I, I spent over 10 years as a social worker in the community. And, and so, you know, I value, you know, therapy. Um, but at the same time, it's like there is a real historical context and experience that yes. perpetuates this conversation. And so it's actually a rational conversation. Yes. I think we need to rewind it a little bit and say, hey, how are you taking care of yourself? Yes. <laughs> like, how are you, like, are you praying? Good, yeah. praying is good. We like yeah. that. There's some yeah. other things we can do too, right? right. And, it's, and it's important to remind ourselves of that because we have more tools in the, in the toolkit. I mean, our ancestors did a lot more with a lot less, right? If you think about it. Mm -hmm. And so we do have some tools in the toolkit that we got to rely on. Mm 
Mm-hmm. But um, but but I think that you know the way we have the conversation, like I just don't want to devalue that conversation because I actually think it's the opportunity to engage right. to discover some of those tools. Hey, my partner and I have this conversation a lot about health and healing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'll be you know quite honest with you that my pathway through healing um, has been a challenging one. You know, you know, I would argue that it took me a great deal of time to even speak my truth out in the world. So we have to acknowledge that because of the amount of trauma many of us have experienced, that we all come to this in different stages at different times in our lives. Um, if we ever do, and then the healing process, a lifelong process. Um, I mean, that's the first thing that I think is really important for us to acknowledge. Um, I also feel like, you know, there are different reasons that we are afraid to speak up. I'm thinking about black women and domestic violence. I'm thinking about um, uh, the conversation about sexuality in the black community. Thank you. I'm thinking about um, what it means to say you're not okay. Whereas we, white supremacy teaches us that we have to be superhuman instead of mm. being ourselves. Mm-hmm. Because if you say you need help, right? Or um, I'm never going to forget one of the evictions interviews I did. One of the folks I interviewed stated that um, as a result of uh, being evicted, becoming homeless and living in shelter, she started using drugs. Yeah. When the coordinated entry person interviewed her and asked her if she was suffering from any other health issues, mental or otherwise, she told me straight up, I didn't tell her the truth. Yeah. Right? Mostly because she said, well, in order for them to help me, it sounded like I had to have all these other problems. Yeah. And I had to fit their white narratives of who I was as a Black person. Yeah. I'm also never going to forget an interview where a gentleman who... Um, former addict, went through a recovery program, um, was in transitional housing and got his very first apartment. I met him the day after the city of Minneapolis came in and condemned that building and gave him 15 minutes to move out. He checked himself into the psych ward because he really wanted a drink. And I met him the next day. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just be really clear here. Yeah. The ways in which systems are making it challenging for folks to feel like they can be honest about what they're struggling with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then this is a lifelong journey. Let's get more of these comments and questions from our folks who want to talk about this. And I appreciate the interaction that we're having with our listeners. From Penny, Penny says, after the protests have ended, what is next for us as black and brown people? I feel like we're talking, but without any leadership, there's no clear path forward uh, for the response to the conditions. And so right now we're seeing every day, every evening, gatherings and protests. But when those end, how do we move forward as black and, and, and brown people and, um, and, take care of our, our, and take care of ourselves and be able to feel like we can contribute and address what's happening, um, but also be able to take care of ourselves personally? Justin? Yeah, thank you, Angela. That's uh, that's a great question, Penny. It's something I think about a lot. 
because I think people, they're finding community in those protests. I mean, that it has been very helpful to people to stand next to, to others who, who are demanding justice. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's the, I mean, protest works, right? When you organize, you win. And so I think it's important that, um, that people continue to demand justice for George Floyd, that all the officers are arrested and charged, um, and and that we and that we continue to 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 well, actually let me be clear about something. Mm-hmm. Let me just be clear about justice for George Floyd is not about putting more people in prison. Mm-hmm. Justice for George Floyd is about redesign reimagining our justice system. So that there doesn't have to be another George Floyd. Exactly. So yeah, let's get these officers off the street. Let's get them. They they need to be charged. They need to be convicted. And that and that is why we have AG Ellison on the case. But I want to be clear. Like what I'm starting to look at as the executive director of the council is what is the Marshall Plan for minute Black Minnesotans? Like how do we completely redesign? Because right now every system is failing our people. Yes. And so we need our best and brightest to be informing our, our government officials on what is going on in the healthcare system. We need Dr. Brittany <laughs> Lewis mm-hmm. to, to just, they should just like give you an office and before they open the door, <laughs> before they make any decisions, just run it by you. And, and that's- pay her, pay her first though, pay her pay first. Her, pay her, yeah, yeah. And, and the and the, And that's the role of the council really, is to, is to, is to give that advice to, to lawmakers and let them know that this thing that we dealing with right here is not going to be fixed just by incarcerating these officers. We have so much work, more work to do than that. And so I'm calling on the community. I really am. With all the work that we've done these past few weeks, but protecting our homes, being out in the streets, being sleeping in our businesses, the work that Leslie Badu is doing, the work that Lisa Clemens, VJ Smith, Mac, Reverend McAfee, we got brothers. I ain't going to call out no particular sets, but we got some sets out there that are representing the community, holding it down. Yeah. We need all of you to get crystal clear about what we need as a people in this state. And then we need to lay that bare for the folks who have the power to deliver on it. And that is the next fight. We need to keep demanding justice. We will get justice for George Floyd. We will get these officers off the street. And let's not waste this opportunity. Let's show the nation, let's show the nation what black healing and investments in black communities and building black infrastructure can look like on the other end of this crisis that we're in right now. And I, yeah. Uh, Brittany, what's next after the protest? What do you see that could be helpful? I really appreciate your comments, Justin, and I support them 100%. Um, I guess just to piggyback off of that, you know, there are a lot of tangible action steps that can be taken, but community we have to show up, not just when there's a need for a protest. Um, I believe in the work that protesters are doing. The symbolism um, is necessary, it's important. But I wanna ask those folks that are showing up during this time, because let's just be honest, I'm remembering I can remember from Trayvon Martin to George Floyd, I was at every protest. And again, my work um, in the realm of equity and research and action has always been in that space. But I don't see those same people um, showing up um, 
when there doesn't appear, let's just say appear to be um, a public threat. We are walking daily, waking up, feeling that way. I want to ask the same people showing up to take that, that rage and anger. Let's be really clear. I think those can be productive energies. I think those energies get demonized Mm -hmm. and also attached to black bodies. Rage and anger are productive energies Mm -hmm. and can be fueled in ways that create change that's unimaginable. So I would ask all those folks that are showing up now, many folks that weren't plugged in before or didn't feel like that kind of engagement was for them and those that have always been engaging, which um, organization speaks to your politics and philosophies? Are you willing to put in sweat equity? Yes. And what does that look like for you and your family? Because I would argue for my family, um, social justice work is a is like breakfast. Yeah. Let's just be clear. I have uh, two girls. My daughter, Brooklyn, um, I got an email from a, a teacher recently. The student council had Arida, Chief Arredondo um, come to the student council and she got to ask a question. <laughs> and the teacher emailed me because she remembered the question Brooklyn asked. And she asked, with, in no unclear terms, what are you going to do to stop the police from killing black people? Yes. His response to my then fifth grader was, I came here to try to change a culture. And it doesn't happen overnight. So, I mean, I heed his point. I appreciate the move he made in firing four officers, but we can't wait another night. Um, So me and my children and my family make social justice conversations a part of our ethics and how we move. Um, It can't be politically progressive for the moment. Yes. Having this discussion. So if folks are asking what's next, read Reevaluate your own ethics as an individual and family. It has to be part and parcel to who you are Mm. and how you move and when you speak up. And why ally, I'm going to need you to speak up in these boardrooms, commission meetings, et cetera, because I'm tired of being in spaces where people are waiting for Dr. Lewis to say something because they know I will. Yeah. I'm waiting. I'm a listener first. I'm a listener. I'm going to make sure I understand your logic, how you're moving, and what supports what you say. And then I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to use data analysis and challenge you. And then after the meeting, a number of white allies will come up to me and like, I'm so glad you said something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're yeah. experiencing this all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It shouldn't just be our burdens to carry. Yeah. I, I, I want to just... I got to pick up on it. First of all, uh, I think the way that that uh, Chief Arredondo responded to that is fine. I want to say I, I I appreciate Brooklyn, right? Yeah. I appreciate that, right? That that's so. So when the questioner says, "What do you do?" Do that, right? Study, learn, get with other people, argue, fight. Cry and bring your butt back and do it again and again and again and again for the liberation of our people. The 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 white comfort in this society trumps my liberation. Mm-hmm. That that is a rule. That's that that's woven into it. So white folks, if you don't battle your own comfort and your own willingness to go back to being comfortable, if I hear one more white person say to me, "When are we going to go back to normal?" Normal wasn't good for me. 
going back to what that was, that wasn't good for me and my people. So I know you want to go back because it was gravy. Right. It was gravy for you. But we ain't going with that, that, that. That's not that's when we look back, it's not like we have fondness in our eyes. So so what I want to say is that the, the what sister uh, with sister with Dr. Brittany and, and brother uh, Justin just talked about is the difference in a philosophy. Yes. A living philosophy. And what Dr. Brittany and Brother Justin are talking about is a philosophy that takes into account the structural damage and not episodic. If we keep looking at this, this is not episodic, it's structural. And if we keep looking at it as episodic, you know, this black body gets destroyed, that black body gets destroyed, this, right? We keep looking at that, then we won't have the fuel that we need in order to build a cultural container by which we can have transformation occur. So so what, what they are talking about is saying that what you have to do is help us build the cultural container. What you have to do is not ask us the question. What you have to do is go get up from the from from the radio, go look in the mirror and say, what am I going to do? How am I going to put in SWEC equity to make sure that we deal with this structurally, not just episodically? All right. I want to bring in an, another comment and a question from a listener. Bren writes, as we continue to see the brutality of police and the Minneapolis Police Department loses contracts, including Minneapolis Public Schools. We see people calling for abolishing the system of the police that's in place. So what comes after police disbands? Uh, We know that the Minneapolis Public School uh, uh, District uh, has decided not to contract with Minneapolis Police for school resource officers. Uh, The University of Minnesota took a similar step. The Park Board is looking at that now. Now, uh, what happens if when the police or if that happens that we see, you know, no, we don't need your services or the department disbands? Uh, actually, I spoke first the last time. Does anyone else want to respond to this one? Dr. Brittany, go ahead. Yeah. So my understanding of the question is like, I've been seeing a lot of how institutions have responded. So like the University of Minnesota, many of us public schools recently passed an amendment to you know, end all contracts with the MPD. Um, I know there's a number of organizations that intend to push resolutions that either end their contractual relationship or call for the defunding um, of policing completely, um, pushing for more community police um, approaches, et cetera. Um, I'm fully in support of reimagining what community policing looks like. Let's be clear, we don't have community policing. That's a a goal or interest of ours. Um, But I also want us to walk in um, intentionally about the steps that we need to take to get there. Yeah. To ensure everybody's safety in that process. Yeah. 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 Um, I really want to keep that in mind. Yeah. I, I would love to hear... I mean, I was particularly interested in hearing from Justin about what this conversation has sounded like. Yeah, I, I think so, Dr. Brittany. I think um, the the issue. So here's the thing: as far as the council's concerned, like we're not going to see us talk about abolish anything, right? Right. Our our job is to help us reimagine mm-hmm. what the system could look like. Mm-hmm. So don't tell me what you want to dismantle. Tell me what you want to build. Mm-hmm. Tell me, like, let's design that. 
And because yeah. one, we don't often have the opportunity to do that as black people, <laughs> right? Like right. here we are in a situation yeah. where the system that is targeting, destroying and murdering our people at, at its worst, right? And at its best, it's like taxing us and removing resources and, and, and failing to protect us. And so the what we need to do is actually just like, I think we need to bring together our, our, our brightest folks and talk to the community and figure out like what would, the goal isn't policing. The goal is not to dismantle the police. The goal is not to fix right. the police department. The goal is public safety. Yeah. The goal is community safety. And I love that we do this exercise where we ask people, and I did this in a room full of officers once, where I was like, yo, close your eyes, take a couple deep breaths and, and answer this question. What does safety look like to you? Mm-hmm. What does it smell like to you? Mm-hmm. What does it feel like to you? Right? Mm-hmm. And the images people came up with was like, you know, it looks like a playground. It smells like, for me, I was like, it smells like waffles because that's what I make for my boys on mm-hmm. Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what we're ultimately trying to protect. That is ultimately what we are trying to build. And nobody, even in a room full of officers, not a single one of them said safety looks like a police officer. <laughs> right. That is that is telling. Yeah. That is telling about where we're at right now. So we got to keep the main thing, the main thing, to build a path towards public safety that's that is not co-opted by policing and prisons and, the co- and corrections and yeah. all of that nonsense, because none of that actually represents safety. Right, right. Like, right. Something I'm curious about from you is I think I struggle with this idea of reimagining because I'd argue that some of us are in a more privileged position to imagine. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I do, I, I engage with this debate with my peers and others because, um, and we struggle with this notion of can you can you move within a system without a system? You have to completely dismantle the system. Yeah. Who has the privilege to even have the time and space to consciously reimagine a system they feel like they're trapped within? Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. I struggle with that dialogue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is one of the difficulties that I think comes up when we start to start with uh only what we want to get rid of first as opposed to who and what we want and who we are right this is this is not a question of of policing this is a question of who are we and what and how do we want that thing to be expressed in the world how do we build that so so what i would so dr Brittany, so the re, i don't have these types of arguments with people because what i'm talking about is a philosophy I'm not just talking about strategy. I'm talking about philo- like like how do we build a philosophy, a living philosophy, and not how do we build into it. That's wrong. How do we tap into that which is already there? All the stuff that we're talking about in terms of how we want to be treated, how 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 my gay and lesbian and transgender uh uh, black folks want to be treated within the black community. Like, how how do we do that? How do we develop these pieces with each other, right? And how do we want that 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 which already is to be expressed? So, one of the things that I always say is that most of the time when we get into arguments and try and debate this, is we're moving too fast. We are we're we're we're, we're not slowing it down and asking people like like what Justin did when he said that to the police officers and not one police officer said a police officer. What he did is that he slowed it down. 
He said, breathe for a second. Now imagine what safety smells like. What he's doing is he's making them get into the body first. Because if he stood in the head, if he stayed in the head, they would have rejected it. Right. They would have rejected and came up with all of the usual, you know, uh, a jackboot type of stuff. But because he said, breathe and stay in the body, what does it smell like? What's the texture? What's the vibe? What's the meaning? What's the behavior? What's the affect? What's the sensations? Like, how do you know? Right. He stayed in the body and it's he slowed them down. So many times when we have these discussions, we don't slow the body down enough that because the, what people are doing is reflexively at, uh, uh, answering the question from cognitive, not from what's in the body, what's resourced. That's what I would say. We have to slow the process down first, and then people will begin to say, oh, okay, let's do this. Let's do this. If you don't orient people first, they will, especially our people, we're so busy trying to figure out how to survive this craziness day after day after day, that when you ask me a question like that, if I have not been oriented, I'm going to say, we ain't got no time, we ain't got to do, right? Because I got to defend myself against this stuff. I got to defend myself against the d- disappointment. I got to defend myself against the brutality. So we have to slow it down first. I'm just deeply appreciative for the time that, that you all gave us, our guests, as well as our listeners and folks who are joining us. Uh, thank you so much for this essential conversation that we um, conversation we need to have right now about black trauma, about policing. Um, our guests have been, again, Resma Minikim, a licensed clinical social worker and cultural trauma expert, fan of of uh, Biggie Smalls as well. I need to note Biggie's presence in this conversation. <laughs> the photo behind you, he's the founder of Justice Leadership Solutions in Minneapolis and the author, if you're looking for something to read, the author of My Grandmother's Hands, Racialized Trauma and the Pathway to Mending Our Hearts and Bodies. Justin Terrell, the executive director of the State Council for Minnesotans of African Heritage, which is a nonpartisan agency advising the state government to more equitably represent Black and African people, and Dr. Brittany Lewis, founder and CEO of Research in Action, also a University of Minnesota researcher at its Center for Urban and Regional Affairs. Thank you all for your time and for uh, the valuable uh, comments that you shared with us. This has been Spotlight on Black Trauma and Policing. I'm Angela Davis from Minnesota Public Radio News. This program is produced by Call to Mind, which is NPR and APM's initiative to foster new conversations about mental health. Again, this is APM, American Public Media. Thank you. Thank you, Chrissy Pease, for stepping in and producing this quickly. Uh, Thank you, Christina Lopez and Phyllis Fletcher and Lily Kim for bearing extra workloads, uh, emotional and physical, this week for our entire organization. Thank you to Angela Davis, Resma Menachem, Justin Terrell, and Dr. Brittany Lewis. You can find their work in the show notes for this episode. We will be back next week with more Terrible Thanks for Asking.